0: Welcome to another episode of Create a New Tomorrow. I am your host, Ari Gronich, and I have with me one of my my dearest friends, Iman Khan. He is an amazing person. Uh, He's led mindset transformational programs for almost 10 years. He and his wife, uh, Afreen, have created a company called Red Elephant that has impacted hundreds of entrepreneurs' lives. So Iman, I'm going to have you give kind of your background a little bit more in depth so that you can really uh, focus on what you wanted to to mention. Uh, I don't
1: know how much gravity that has, but we're all out here trying to make a difference for people, I think. And for me, that's kind of been always the case. All of my careers, because there's been quite a few, have been organized around making a difference for people. First, my first career was in international diplomacy and Then I transitioned into being a journalist, and then I led mindset programs and transformational workshops for close to about 20,000 people over the past, uh, my bio's a little dated, it's over the past 16 years now. Uh, You know, that's our hustle. We want to get out there and change the world through doing the work we do.
0: Yeah, so, you know, I want to go into that international diplomacy area a little, because you and I have a somewhat similar background in some of the work that you've done with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we don't really get that conversation too much. So I wanted to just kind of expose it a little bit and what you, what you had done during your time working with those two factions.
1: Sure. Uh, My time there was limited. It was very short lived. um, And mostly it was, Founded in one of my professors uh, in college was and is the founder of Americans for Peace Now, which is from the American side of the negotiation process, one of the largest players in that process. So he was not just my professor, he was like a, he's, he was a mentor, he turned into someone I've modeled myself after and emulated since then, and that was, you know, almost 20 years ago. Um, that's how I got involved in the processes, because he was involved in the process. And my time there was short-lived pretty much for two reasons. Um, the first reason was I could see once I was in that process that that process for me, and I don't want to be political or get anyone upset, but for me, that process had very little to do with peace. That process is by my understanding of it, mostly about other things. And that wasn't the game I wanted to play. I really wanted to play the game of peace. And at the government level, it doesn't seem to be about peace for me, it still doesn't. It's about, you know, air rights and water rights and land rights and a whole
0: bunch of things that I think weren't for me what I signed up for. Absolutely, so, you know, for for me, I, I, I used to have a roommate who was a Palestinian Muslim woman, and she was like my sister. I'm a Jewish male, right? So not necessarily what you would consider to be, um, what most people would consider to be compatible roommates and, and friends, but she was basically like a sister to me. Yeah. Her, her cousin uh, owned the law firm that does all of the negotiations between Hamas, PLO, and Israel. Mm-hmm. And so we would have these conversations about how, um, you know, she would say something about how Israel is, is a, um, oppressing Palestine. And I would say something about the bombing. And we would be talking and we would have these heated conversations. And then I'd hear her in her room talking to her cousin. And she'd be like, "Okay, when you talk to them, you gotta, we gotta, you know, talk about this particular thing." And she would state some of the solutions that we had come up with during our conversations. It was kind of fascinating that, yeah. that we had that kind of a direct.
1: Yeah, I, I get it. I mean, some of the best conversation. I think when you're in open dialogue with people, and that's the thing. My professor's name was Mark Rosenblum, and that's the thing he really brought me into was dialoguing with all different concerns and people from all over the spectrum one of the one of the groups that he had me in we had a former member of hitler's youth in that group you know and so having all those different perspectives and being able to look at a lot of different perspectives is i think what actually leads to understanding and leads to the promotion of things that end up leading to peace Um, i think there's a basic understanding in Israeli culture, from all the Israelis I met that, and I mean in the citizenry, in the, in the populace, that Palestinians are their brothers and their sisters. And uh, Among Israeli citizens, it's a different ball game for the most part than I think it is with the Israeli government. Um, and I think those are definitely two different bodies of interest with two different sets of goals and uh, milestones that they're looking to achieve. And I think when we talk about any nation and what's going on politically, we're always talking about the nation and the government and not talking about its citizens necessarily. But, you know, I've met some of some of my closest friends, some of the people I've learned more from have been people who I was introduced to who are Israeli through this process. And I don't think there's any question. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit removed from it now, but There was a time when there was as many civic organizations in Israel as there were in Palestine working on behalf of Palestinians. So I think that speaks to how the citizenry and the government aren't always necessarily walking the
0: same path towards whatever they're looking to achieve. So let me ask you a question. If 80% or so of the country has a liberal way of being or liberal mindset what's going on in the country to, to, I mean, the last 30 to 50 years have been kind of hell on the country as far as being progressive, you know, progressing in the world. Uh, we've, we, we, we tend to not act within our own self-interest in our politics, in our behaviors and things like that. And so I go back to like, how do we get To eliminate the bully, you know, for instance, I'll just give you an example because it's my world is healthcare, right? So in healthcare, the reality of healthcare is that it is so far removed from giving people good health. Yeah. And so why is it that we allow these systems that are very, conservative in nature, if we're liberal in nature, and the system is a conservative in nature system, then how come we're allowing such disparity between reality of what is happening and the ideals that we're promoting?
1: Sure. Again, I'm no expert on this. This is just kind of what I think and what I know based on what I see and what I study. I've got got no degree in this. I've got no career in policy or uh, social understanding or anything like that. But I'll give you my two cents about it. And I think it's a complex question. So first thing is, I think the mindset of the citizen and the systems of government are two very distinct things. Systems of government are very conservative. They're very old and they take a lot to transform or change to keep up with the liberal mindset. So I think that's the first thing. I think they're two different uh, groups in terms of what they care about, what they're listening for, what they wanna see happen in society. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the systems of government that are in place, we now know are in place in a way that empowers a very small percent of the population. There's a reason 5% of the country controls 90% of the wealth. So I think the systems we have in place in government support, if not completely empower or enable that reality. So when you have that reality, and most of a nation is poor, uh, in debt, overworked, what happens is it's not like it was in the 1950s where people went to work from nine to five and then they came home and they had the central family unit and they gathered around the dinner table and discussed the issues of the day and had the spare time to go be a part of civil society and go be civilians who voted and acted on behalf of the things they cared about. People now are working 12, 14 hours a day, six days a week. Those people are still surviving off of EBT They're taking their EBT checks to the places where they work often to the people that aren't paying them enough to not need EBT and spending those EBT checks at those very places to be able to eat. When you work 12 to 14 hours a day and you have one day off, that day off goes to laundry, paying bills, spending time with the kids if you have any time or with family or whoever. The, The time is completely usurped by maintaining life. So people are fried. They're, they're burnt out. And when they get home, being an active citizen, which is already stress-inducing, is not the thing that they're going to want to do. I think the corporations know this. I think the people who wield the power and hoard the money know this. And they've created systems to keep people tired and to keep people unable to participate, unable to advocate for themselves. And then the people who do advocate, the people who step out of that and who actually go the extra mile and do the difficult work of advocating, the way social media's sort of grown, what it's grown into in the last 20 years is that anybody can say anything about anyone and it doesn't need to be fact-checked. You know, I was on a thread this morning that someone tagged me in about wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. And I know I don't wanna debate that, there's a lot of discussion about that, but when someone asks someone else to cite their sources about why wearing a mask is a hoax their sources are things that QAnon and youtubers Have put up It's not data. It's not empirical data. It's not evidence. It's not numbers It's my friend who I really trust who did a YouTube on this
0: my saying is a bully's best friend is the silence of its victims and the Mm -hmm. silence of others. And, you know, we see this every day on, in the playground at school with kid who's, you know, got 30 other kids in his class scared. And the 30 kids don't know that they could kind of band together and blow out that bully. And we've got 90% of a nation that is being ruled by about 1%, 1% to 5%. And we don't know, the, the, the 90% don't know that they have an option to get loud <laughs> and say, no more. Let's band it together, create a movement, create a stand.
1: I would go a step further and say it's not even that they don't know. It's that they've been uh, conditioned into believing that it's more risky to band together 30 kids to take on that one bully and that there's less risk if you just join with the bully. If you join with the bully, you'll be safe. If you band together and fight the bully, that's a risk. So even though it defies logic, the safe bet that we've been conditioned to believe is to go with the system, go with the bully. And you know, again, I could talk about this for hours, but if you look at who designed our current education system, who got together? They weren't educators and professors and PhDs and doctors. They were the, the barons of the 1920s and 30s and 40s who owned the big corporations and wanted our education system to groom employees. They didn't want our education to groom thinkers or innovators or entrepreneur, entrepreneurs. They wanted our education system to put good, able-bodied, thinking people into employee so that they could continue to grow their organizations and their corporations. And so we've had almost a hundred years of this kind of acculturation. So I know it seems separate that like the guys who were inventing education, what does that have to do with the modern bully? But it's a mindset. It's the way we've been designed and acculturated to go with the bigger guy. And it's all over television. If you watch any reality TV, uh, shows like uh, Survivor, other shows where People have to strategize to vote someone out. People will never band together to get the bully out. They always side with the bully to get the protection of the bully. So we've been acculturated this way for quite some time. And, you know, depending on what you believe and what you don't believe, when you're acculturated this way for this many generations, it becomes part, you know, it's like fish to water. It's part of the air we breathe. It's just what is in society. Fish would never question that they need water surrounding them. Same way we don't question that. You just, you gotta go with the bully to be safe.
0: So, so then here's the question, because I watched the riots, I watched the, the protests happening uh, recently. Uh, I was in the middle of the Rodney King riots, like having flaming trash cans thrown over my car. So yeah. I, I've been in the atmosphere of rioting and protesting. But as my buddy, AJ uh, has said, where are you today? Where you were there yesterday at the protest, but where are you today? What are you doing today to extend the reach beyond a protest, especially beyond a violent protest into policy making? right? So how would you, you know, as somebody who helps people create their stands, right? How would you shift somebody from the need to be an employee who's working 10 to 12 hours, 16 hours a day and has no time to really do what they are passionate about and they have a stand about. How would you suggest somebody get out of that world so that they can be long-term activated in the protest? on a more internal basis versus external basis?
1: Well, I, again, there's just so much to- unpack. The questions are complex. There's so much to unpack in them. So the first thing is, I don't know. First, you'd have to see if they have that desire. If they don't have that desire, I wouldn't, you know, you can't pee for people. So if they've got that desire, great. It starts with educating themselves and setting themselves up to be able to be viable and sustain whatever future they're moving into and away from. And if it's not viable, it'll fail. So I can't, when I, I'll give you an example. When I left my corporate job and became an entrepreneur, I had to be able to see that I could sustain myself that way and then go after sustaining myself that way and give myself enough room to be able to eat and not be financially threatened in the interim because financial. We know that financial threats are the biggest kind of threats for people. When facing a financial threat, people will give up their passions and what they stand for and what they're committed to to deal with the financial threat. Very few people have that kind of wherewithal where they can withstand a financial threat for the sake of what they stand for or they're committed to. It's just too much of a threat to their existence. Our ego, our brain does not register it in a way in which is conducive to us. Fulfilling on our commitments when we're threatened financially. So, I think the first thing that has to get handled for people is they have to be able to look and know that they're going to be financially okay. And if they're confident about their financial future, it becomes way more easy, way more
0: uh, risk reduced for them to be able to step into that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Iman, for coming on. I know that you've got uh, a busy life, and so it was, uh, it was important for me to have you on here. I wanted to have these kind of conversations with you. Uh, I would look forward anytime to continuing the next 10 hour conversation. Yeah. And, uh, and a couple
1: of hours next time
0: in with us, you know, but uh, I appreciate it. Um, you're, you're an amazing and inspirational person. Thank you. You too. And thank you for the opportunity. So thank you very much. Um, audience, I hope you got a lot out of this conversation. This has been another episode of create a new tomorrow. I am your host Ari Gronich. And my wish for you is that you can create a new tomorrow today by taking some of these bits and pieces of information and gems that, uh, that the guests have shown and implementing them in your life right away. So Thank you so much. And, uh, we are out. Thank you.